Everybody brace yourself. I'm about to say a bad word in church. City. That's right, city. God hates cities. He's always throwing brimstone at them. I don't know what brimstone I don't know what brimstone is, but it can't be good. In Genesis, cities are built by murderers like Cain, and big clumps of people just bring corruption and violence. So it's no surprise that the city with a tower in it in the so-called Tower of Babel story leaves us thinking that God hates cities, that the minute he saw one, he put it right out of business, no cities. Now you might be thinking, oh, God couldn't hate all cities. Isn't there one, a holy city in a holy land, where in the quiet dawn of a Sabbath, the righteous stream out to the sanctuaries to pray? Well, you got me there. I suppose God does love Minneapolis. (laughs) But other than that, God hates cities. So in this story, God looks out for the people he'd made. Seemed like only yesterday he'd formed them out of clay, claymation, and plopped them down in a garden and given them the only job description homo sapiens ever got, till the garden and keep it. But they managed to screw that up. God was all, you can have all the fruit you want. But they were all, oh, we don't want just apples and grapes. We have to have grapples. We can't handle any limits. So God kicked him out of paradise, put an angel with a flaming sword at the door. In other words, no going back. No more gathering food and cheerful innocence. Agriculture for you, Skippy. (laughs) Weeds and sweat and pain. So now it's like eight chapters later, and God looks down... God looks down for the clay people he'd made. And the clay people have plopped themselves down in one place in the east in Mesopotamia, and they're building a city out of clay? I don't know if God has a forehead, but if he does, he must have slapped it. Holy himself. (laughs) A city. To the people stomping around in clay and straw, He says, thought you'd mix up a few bricks, did you? Well, I will mix you up. And he did. Well, you know the traditional interpretation of this story. It's hubris, right? The city people think they're so great, and maybe their big tower is an attempt to reach heaven. But God punishes them by giving them different languages and ruining their plans. So cue the usual sermon on the deadly sin of pride, sing three verses of a hymn, preferably one in which we call ourselves worms, and we're out of here. But there's just a teensy problem with this interpretation. Diversity in language and culture is a punishment? No, we think diversity is a blessing. So a more recent reading has been cropping up that it's unjust empires that are always trying to demand unity by quashing diversity, not the kind of community God wants for us. 
Maybe it wasn't punishment, but liberation. Freedom for all the people doing all the hard work for someone else's profit. I like to imagine them walking away singing in all their new languages. Well, that's getting better. But now some questions about the city and the land. Ostensibly, the story is about Babylon, as well known in ancient times for its towering temple as for its cruel domination. Sometimes the best revenge is a joke, and this story must have been told a million times with humor and delight. With its witty Sumerian and Hebrew wordplay, it turned the gate of the gods into confusion. But at another level, and in a more universal way, this story stands for humanity's ambivalence about the urban impulse. Cities, so civilized, so uncivilized, what do we know about those first Mesopotamian cities and their staged towers, the pyramid-shaped ziggurats? For starters, that they could exist because of wheat cultivation, moved from the headwaters of the Tigris and Euphrates down to rain-starved southern Mesopotamia, where it demanded irrigated agriculture. That supported the growing mass of people in the new cities, and soon the city elites realized if they worked the people harder and took the surplus, they could pay for more buildings, and they could pay for military adventures against other cities. Throw in a few raids to the hill country for extra women for the elites, and you could birth more laborers and more warriors. And with more surpluses, you could employ priests who could promote the patron god and temple of your city, so clearly superior to the god and temple of the next city over. You know, our megachurch is bigger than your megachurch. And those same priests could disseminate the sacred myths that say the gods had created them, the people, for heavy labor. If you're in doubt about whether this was good for most of the people, those at the bottom of the pyramid, so to speak, their skeletons tell the story. Not just the endless canal building, but the rapid shift to grain-based diets took a devastating toll. Porous bones from iron deficiencies, thin tooth enamel from caloric deficiencies, bone lesions, hormonal shifts that accelerated births even more. Not a good deal for the people at all. You know it's starting to sound good? Fruit from trees, a garden to till and keep. And what was happening to the land all this time? Well, as populations grew, deforestation and overgrazing in the highlands brought erosion and heavier runoffs causing floods down in the floodplain that wrecked the canals, that is, when they weren't being wrecked by their neighbors who destroyed each other's irrigation works as acts of war. But it was hard to be more destructive than irrigation itself in an arid land where salts built up with every new application of water, the fresh water lost to evaporation and transpiration leaving salt behind. So they shifted from wheat to the more salt-tolerant barley, but eventually they had to walk away to another part of the Great Floodplain, leaving sand dunes and salt crusts behind. Today, mostly, the shattered soils there support nothing but their testimony to ancient greed and unjust hierarchy. And it's just this way. Oppression of people and oppression of the earth go together. If you see one, the other is probably lurking nearby. But maybe you haven't seen it because at Albertsons we only see the waxy fruit, the cellophane-wrapped meat, 
not the, not the land and its laborers. But you've seen the pictures, haven't you, of salt crusting the soil of the southern San Joaquin Valley, where expensively transported water can barely pull a crop from the exhausted soil? And you know whence the water comes and goes, where the once ubiquitous fish, the tiny smelt at the base of the food chain, are so rare that we fear the ecosystem could collapse? And of course you know about the laborers in California's vast agricultural plain. Nobody's exploiting them, right? So, thank goodness we're so civilized now. No, we aren't. So what else you got, God? Lots. Remember, at one ending of the flood story in Genesis, God makes a covenant not just with people, but with every animal of the earth. A divine covenant with species? Yep. So, no fair thinking that only people count. You can't say, stupid little fish, it's not important, because it is. No fair saying, who cares about soil? God does. In fact, when God's example people finally got entrenched on some soil of their own, they had lots of instructions about growing food. The bounty of the land was theirs, but only on condition of self-limitation. One year in seven, let the field lie fallow. God rested, you rest, the land must rest. Leave the grain at the end of the rows for the alien in your land. What? They get food too? Yep. And leave fallow your growth for the animals. Those species again? Next thing we'll have to respect fruit trees. Oh, that too. Yep. And the economy and the people. Debts are forgiven. Ancestral land restored. Shocking. Or not. This God is about disassembling pyramids, bringing down the mighty, raising up the humble, ushering the last in first, teaching us to look each other in the eye like brothers and sisters and neighbors. Of course, we tend to dismiss and deny God's instructions, and that's why God gives vision. The last two readings were literally visions to Ezekiel and John of a garden in the midst of a city with a freshness and productivity that only rushing clear water brings. I don't mean to make light of the literary and historical complexity of these passages, but did you catch the sense, the feel of restoration, of bringing back to life? Just like the oppression of land and people are one, restoration of land and people are one. The fish return. Salty places become fresh. Trees grow all the fruit you want. Maybe this isn't the kind of word you're used to hearing in church, but listen, when we mess up our lives with our own greed and selfishness, God can restore us, forgive us and heal us and save us. When we restore an ecosystem that greed and selfishness has messed up, that's holy work too. And it's loving your neighbor who needs food and the restored relationship with nature just as much as you do. So what does all this mean for us who live closer to the coastal live oaks than to the oaks of memory? We who live where the Peterson brothers failed to grow wheat and switched to chickens and finally switched to growing young minds. I have some suggestions. You may have better ones. But I say, if you want to cure the separation between yourself and your food, there's no substitute for having your hands in the soil. Suburban homes can have food gardens and mini orchards. T.O. has a community garden. Churches and schools have gardens. CLU might if you want it to. 
it going to waste all this sunshine? You know the average American bite of food travels 1,500 miles on fossil fuels, no less. Make it 20 feet, at least some of it. Till the garden and keep it. Go to the farmer's market and meet the people who grow food locally. Learn how they can do it without toxic chemicals. Put the money right in their hands and you'll take the cigarettes down a notch. Challenge unjust hierarchy wherever you can. Recent collapse of our towering corporations and institutions we once trusted should wake us up. Maybe you can't reorder society, but you can refuse to give your time and allegiance to organizations that oppress. You can walk away from them singing your own song and build new institutions. Learn to till and tend the earth with justice. Support those who do. Help build an economy and a society where both people and the earth matter. I still don't know whether God hates cities, but I know that she cares how we live and how we use the earth. God blesses justice and mercy and buildings that serve instead of oppress. May all our buildings serve, and may all our new ones be LEED certified. <laughs> God blesses gardens and chickens and fruit trees right in the midst of a city, and he blesses the languages he gives us like gifts. God blesses college kids on their non-polluting bicycles and skateboards, and he blesses old Norwegian farmers with deeds in their hands and tears in their eyes. And he blesses all of us who follow them with grateful hearts.